This week's Parsha begins with the story of the Maraglim and a very, very unfortunate and very black time period in the Jewish nation's history. Hashem says, Shlach Lecha Anoshim, choose men, and Moshe Menu chooses 12 Gedolim, 12 Sadikim. Each Shevet has its own great person, and as Rashi says, Kulam Anoshim. They were all people of extreme importance, extreme righteousness, very holy Jews when they went out on this journey. And Moshe Rabbeinu instructs them, go to the land, <coughs> spy out the land, see the strengths, the weaknesses, look at the land itself, and look at the people there, do they live in fortified cities, or are they brave, do they live in open fields, bring back a report about the land. And the Moraglim leave, and they begin a 40-day journey around the entirety of Eretz Yisrael. But from the moment they enter, it doesn't bode well. They see unusual things. They see the land occupied by giants. And in fact, when they come back, they describe, In our eyes, we were like grasshoppers to them, and so too they viewed us that way. And Rashi is bothered by how did they know how the people of the land over there viewed them, and Rashi says, because they overheard, the Miraglim overheard the occupants of then Eretz Yisrael saying, look in the field, look over there, there's, there's an ant, but it looks just like a man. Meaning they were physical giants to the extent that the Miraglim were puny compared to them. And everything they experienced in that land was quite unusual. When the Miraglim brought back a Eshkol, if you go to Israel today, there's a place called Nachal Eshkol because the Miraglim brought back a cluster of grapes. But explains the Pasuk by Yisrael Bamot Bishnayim. There were two poles, Rashi explains, four men on each side. This cluster of grapes was so huge. I'd imagine each one, maybe the size of a watermelon, that it took two poles, four men on each side, one cluster of grape. It took eight men to carry. The, the people of the land were giants, the fruit were giants. And when the Miraglim came back, they came back with a very, very negative report. And what they were saying was, yes, we came to the land, yes, it was the Vatzchalav Advash, Ephes. However, the people of the land are very, very powerful. They're living in fortified cities. We will be destroyed, we'll be annihilated. And what they were saying to the Jewish nation was, we will not win, we will not enter, we will not we'll be killed out, man, woman, child. Khalid stands up and says, it's not true. If Hashem wants, Hashem will bring us in easily. And the men there, the Miraculum said these words, we cannot go up there. They are stronger. Mimenu simply reads from us. But Rashi says that's not what they were saying. Rashi says, They are stronger than God. We cannot win the war. They're powerful. They're mighty. They're huge. They're more powerful than God. We're going to be destroyed. We're going to be killed. Let's turn around. And in that point, the nation, the Jewish nation said, let's let's point someone else, let's turn back to Mitzrayim. And in fact, that began the terrible fate of the Miraglim. They died a terrible death. For the next 40 years, the Jews had to stay in the Midbar, all of them to die in the Midbar, and only the next generation could go into Eretz Yisrael. And while everything about the story is eye-opening and potentially an important lesson, there's one point that I believe really begs understanding. And that is, these were very, very intelligent people. These were the cream of the crop, the greatest of the class. So these 12 Miraglim were the elite. And as a matter of fact, if you'd like to know how holy they were, 
the Ramban explains when they're mentioned by name, they're mentioned in order of their greatness. Number three is Kaled ben Yefuna. Number five is Yeshua ben Nun. Meaning the great Yeshua who followed Moshe Benu as the next leader of the Klaisrol, who actually brought the Klaisrol into our land, he was number five in greatness of this group. That means there were four men greater than he in that group, and all, all of them were in the league of Kalev and Yeshua. And here's the question How could they say something so foolish? Okay, you come into the land, you see giants. I get it, you're scared, you're afraid. And you could even say, I'm scared to fight him. But how could you say the words, Chaza Kumimenu, they are more powerful than God? And let me explain to you very simply what I mean. There are two areas where we have difficulty in Amuna. The first problem is that I don't believe Hashem is here. Meaning, I'm walking down a street and someone approaches me and holds out a gun. I am in big trouble here. Why? Because I'm alone. I'm on the street, it's dark, it's lonely, no one's here, and I'm alone. And the problem that I face with Emuna with Bitochen, is Hashem isn't here. And that certainly makes sense. And it's certainly something we have to work on and become cognizant of and work and spend a lifetime understanding. But that certainly makes sense. There's another difficulty we, ha- we have with Emuna with Bitochen, and that is granted Hashem's here. But who says Hashem is going to save me? Who says I'm worthy? Who says Hashem is going to intervene? Yes, I know Hashem runs the world. And yes, I know Hashem is present right here. But who says that Hashem is going to help me? Those two mistakes, which are really the bulk of our problem, make sense. I understand it. I relate to this world with my physical senses, my eyes, my nose, my hearing. My five senses deny Hashem's presence. So it takes an awful lot of work to recognize that Hashem is present. That makes sense. There's also many questions of who says I am worthy. That God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is going to intercede, is going to take care of my needs, and to look at my needs and orchestrate things, is certainly something that really begs understanding, and I can understand how a person could ask that. But that's not what the Miraglim was saying. The Miraglim was saying, we get it that Hashem is here. We get it that Hashem does Nisim miracles every day, all the time. But the problem is He's not strong enough. Hashem can't win against these miracles. Now that sounds utterly ridiculous. And this is the generation that lived through the entire Yisrael Mitzrayim. That means they lived through 10 months, 11 months, 12 months of Hashem demonstrating His control of every facet of creation. They lived through Kriyash Yamsuf, an entire Yam, splitting into 12 separate sections. Each channel from floor being smooth all the way up hundreds of feet, walls of ocean. If God is powerful enough to do that, isn't God powerful enough to beat a couple of giants? It sounds very difficult to understand. It sounds very, 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 very hard and perplexing. And the question is, what was Pshat over there, and how can we understand what Rashi is telling us? And to do that, I'd like to begin a little focus on what we know as Emuna, what we know as Bitochen in general. Let me start with a question. The question is, are you a mamin? Are you a believer? Do you believe? Now, what that means in very simple language is, do you believe that Hashem created, maintains, and orchestrates every facet of creation? Do you believe that Hashem fills every particle of physicality? That Hashem is right here at every moment? And do you believe that Hashem records every action of your life? 
And do you believe that Hashem will judge me when I'm done my job here, every single activity, every single word, every single thought from the beginning of my life till the end, Hashem will judge, weigh, and measure. Those are the basic tenets of Amuna. And if I were to ask you, do you believe, I assume we'd all say absolutely. Listen, many of us are from from birth, many of us came through a long, difficult climb, but we are Maminim. We get it. I understand. Hashem runs the world, Hashem is present, Hashem is in charge, and Hashem is here. I got that. So if that's true, I have another little question to ask you. Have you ever sinned? Have you ever spoken Lashon Hara? Have you ever did something that wasn't absolutely, completely right? Here's another little question. Have you ever been scared? If Hashem is here, how is it possible to be scared? Better yet, have you ever fainted during davening? If Hashem is here, and I'm speaking to God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, how is it possible that I don't pass out? And I have another little question. How is it possible that I am not an utter tzaddik, I'm doing everything absolutely correctly all the time. If I get it, Hashem is here, Hashem is watching me, and every action is going to change me for eternity. I'm going to be ever great, shining like the sun in midday, or diminutive and puny, but every single action Hashem is watching, and it shapes me, it molds me. How is it possible that every one of us are not total, total tzaddikim? And the answer to this is predicated on understanding the human, and understanding how Hashem gave us this thing called free will. And we spent a good amount of time in past Shemuzim describing that the human being, that means the I who is speaking to you, are made up of two competing parts. There's a nefesh hasichli and nefesh abahami. Nefesh hasichli is the intelligent part. It's the part of the neshama that speaks. It's my intelligent part that only wants to do what's right, what's good, what's proper. The nefesh abahami has all of the animal drives, all of the instincts, if you go into the wild kingdom, you'll find every animal has a nephesh, the tiger, the baboon, the cougar. They have all the instincts, all the inclinations, all the proclivities needed to keep them alive as well as bring the next species. There's a nephesh, there's a live, vibrant part to the baboon. That nephesh is what guides it, what keeps it going, what tells it what to do, when, and how. Within the human, these two parts are competing. And there's a part of me that's brilliant, insightful, and understanding. And that part only wants to do what's right, good, and proper. My nephesh is sickly. That means a part of the neshama that really sort of comes to the surface. And that part is programmed for greatness. It came from under Hashem's throne of glory and only wants to do what's good, right, and proper. But that part is mixed in with a nephesh abahami, an animal soul. And the animal soul in man is absolutely, completely comprised of drives, desires, there's no wisdom, no forethought, no seeing the future. All it is are hungries, <coughs> desires, appetites, instincts. All it is is the driving part of the human. And the I whom speaking to you are made up of both parts. But here's the very, very tricky part of it. The two are ever competing. The two are ever in balance <coughs> with one or the other gaining primacy. And if you like to understand the conscious I whom speaking to you... All you have to understand is, I'm sort of half Seichel, half Nefesh Bahami, but both of them are covering my eyesight. And if you think of it this way, if you imagine a lens, imagine that the Nefesh Sichli is clear, it sees with absolute clarity, but the Nefesh Bahami is a muddy brown lens. And depending on how strong the Nefesh Bahami is, it will determine how clear my vision is. So imagine I'm an average person, and I'll be 20% Nefesh Sikhli, 80% Nefesh Bahami, 
So I see in a very muddy sort of way. I mean, the Nefesh Bahami itself is 100% brown, but it's not fully occluding my vision. It's mostly, it's only 80%, because I have 20% Nefesh HaSichli. So I see things in very unclear terms, and very muddy, and very sort of confused. And while it's not my vision that's blocked, it's my understanding, my perception, and that's exactly how it is that I stand davening right in front of Hashem and I space out. That's how it is that I could say the words, the value of every word of Torah is incalculable, and then I could do whatever instead of learning. How is it possible I speak Lashon Hara? Because my mind's eye doesn't see with clarity. I'm 80% occluded, that muddy sort of vision, the Nefesh Bahami, which is that brown, is 80% covering my vision, and therefore I don't value things, I don't see things properly, my mind is blocked. As a person grows, the balance changes. And he might go from 80-20 to maybe 70-30, to maybe 60-40. And as the Nefesh sickly, as the Neshama becomes more potent, most powerful, the Nefesh Bahami has less potency in blocking the vision, and instead of being 80% blocked, he might be 70%, 60%, he might be 50-50, and as a person grows, his vision becomes more clear, his perception becomes more acute, he understands things with much greater clarity. And if you imagine a tzaddik, imagine you have a great person, Chavetz Chaim, Ramosha, and Feinstein, they might have a 2080, meaning they see things so clearly, and Nebuchadnezzar is only 20% blocking their vision. So they see Hashem, feel Hashem totally right there. They recognize the incredible value of mitzvahs. And they recognize that I'm going to die. My body's going to be put in the ground, but I will live for eternity. But they see that, not the way I see it blocked and sort of 80% blocked, quite the opposite. And they see it clearly. Only 20% blockage, and very, very light sort of, sort of tan sort of color blocking. They don't have to see 100% acuity, but they see it very, very clearly, and therefore they're a very different person. If you'd like to understand this, I'll give you a muscle to make it clear. When my kids were little, Sunday was Abba's day. I would take the kids out each Sunday to different places. And I remember one Sunday I took the kids, we were living in Rochester at the time, I took the kids to the museum, and there was a movie in the museum that they were showing, Black Beauty. Now, Black Beauty is the story of this horse, this black horse, a beautiful horse, and it goes through the whole story of the horse. Well, at one point during the, uh, during the movie, my daughter, one of my daughters who was then, I think, six years old at the time, she was sitting on my lap, and Black Beauty, the horse, is in the barn, and someone sets a fire in the barn. And you see the fire starts spreading, but the horse is tied up, and the fire starts spreading, and the smoke, and, the, and my daughter starts crying. I had to walk out of the theater. She was so terrified, she was so horrified by what was going to happen, that I had to walk out of the theater because she couldn't stand seeing it. Now, if you would have asked her, was that real? Was it really a horse? Was he really going to be burnt? The answer is, of course not. It's a movie. So why were you so scared? Why were the tears coming out of your eyes? The answer is, to a child, imagination and reality are very, very flexible. And to a child, the movie looks so real that even though on some level they know it's not, but it sure does feel real, as an adult watching it, I could be emotional, I could feel it, but I know with absolute understanding that it's not real, it's just light, it's just a movie, it's a fake. And that's the difference between us and a tzaddik. We are much like the child. We're in the movie of life, and we see things, and it looks so real, and it looks so powerful and so scary, 
that it's hard to remember that God's really here. It's hard to remember that Hashem really runs the world. If a person grows and becomes greater and greater, and becomes eventually like a tzaddik, at that level, he's like the adult in the movie theater. Yes, there are things that are scary, but he understands. I'm aware that this is a dangerous situation. I'm aware that the doctor says to me, the results are bad. But I also see with 80% clarity that Hashem runs the world. I understand this is just, I feel things, I mean, I understand it's just smoke and mirrors, I'm not terrified, and the difference between us and the tzaddik is, we're like that child where the movie is so real, so scary, and where we become overcome by emotion, because we're 80% living it, 80% occluded, blocked by Nefesh Mahami, and person as he grows becomes clearer and clearer, a tzaddik is at the level where he's like that adult, who can see the movie, be moved by it, and be involved in it, but know that it's completely a bluff, it's completely not true. And this is a very important understanding to recognize why it is that we can intellectually know things, really know them, say them, speak them, write books about them, spend years learning Musr, and I can tell you this from my own personal existence. I spent now 35, 40 years learning these ideas, and working on them, learning covers of all the I've learned it, I've said it, I've given countless numbers of shiurim on it, and yet I'm still in that sort of like, yeah, no, who knows? Because again, we're in that sort of 80% occluded, the Nefesh Abahami is 80% covering, and it's very, very difficult to really feel it. And if you'd like to understand life, life is much like that movie. We are thrust into life, and any Nisoyan that you will be put against is like something playing on that big screen. It's an illusion, it's a bluff, Hashem is there every moment, keeping you in existence, <coughs> keeping that mugger in existence, keeping every particle of physicality in existence. No human being can harm you. No human being can help you. Hashem is guiding every minute. But that's not what it looks like. Because I'm like that child in the movie theater that looks so scary. <coughs> and I just lost my job. I'm in trouble. I cannot pay my mortgage. I'm going to be bankrupt. I feel it because I'm like that child in the theater it looks so real, it's so vivid, it's so scary. And that's why every Nisayan is so difficult. You see, for me to watch your Nisayan is very easy, because I'm not watching that movie. I'm looking like the adult, because I'm not involved in it. And if I'm looking from the outside, it's very easy for me to tell you, Habitachan, don't worry about it. I know it looks bad, but Hashem will help, don't worry about it. But the minute it's me involved... I'm in that theater, I'm 80% blocked. Intellectually, I understand it, but emotionally, I'm caught up in things, and that is the test of bitochen. The test of bitochen is not when you're in the base medrash. The test of bitochen is not when you're talking to your friends about how good Hashem is. The test of bitochen is when you lost that major client, and you know that your entire business is now in jeopardy. It's when the doctor says, I have some really bad news. It's when your wife tells you your kid is really doing bad. Those are the real tests. Why? Because then it's real, then it's me. I'm in the sign of life, and I'm in the movie theater, but like the child, it looks so real, so vivid, and it's hard to remember that Hashem is really here. I see it only 20% because I'm blocked, and that is the understanding that you have to take into every Nisayan, and that's why it's so difficult, even though intellectually we know things, Emotionally, it's so difficult to understand them. 
And that is the answer for how it is we can know that Hashem is present, yet we can speak Lashon Hara. And we can know Hashem's present and space out during davening. We can know the value of mitzvahs and still whatever. Because again, we're like that child was so caught up in the movie. It looks so real that it's hard to remember that which we intellectually know. However, the human being is far more complex than that. And I'd like to explain to you what I mean. Recently, I had a mother who called me up with her, that her son, a really good bacher in yeshiva, very fine fellow, he's a masmid, Davin's beautifully fine midas, and suddenly he crashes, totally depressed, not coming to shear, n- nothing. Mother calls me up what's, to see if I could help. I speak to the young man, young man, and I discover the problem. And what is the problem? The problem is he has uh, a certain problem with issues that most of uh, the human race has trouble with, males especially, especially younger males, certainly Yeshiv Bachram. And he got involved in doing things that he shouldn't have been doing, and he crashes. But I want you to understand why he crashes. He starts doing things he knows he shouldn't be doing, looking at things he shouldn't be looking, thinking things he shouldn't be thinking, and he's doing something wrong. Here's the question. Why does that crush him? Let's be frank. It's a sin. He's not allowed. I get it. But we all sin. I'm embarrassed to say it. Maybe I should be more embarrassed. But when I clap Al-Khaytz on Yom Kippur, I, like the rest of the Jewish nation, have a lot to answer for. I am not a tzaddik. I don't sit in front of Hashem and say, Hashem, maybe one time this year I did something wrong. Uh Uh-uh. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of things that I could have done better, things I've done wrong. And again, all you have to do is just look at one day in your life, look at the way we speak to people, look at what we do, and you'll quickly see there's lots and lots of things that I could be doing much better and many, many things I do wrong. So why is it that I'm not crushed? I could live with that. And I could clap al chaitz on Yom Kippur in a long list and recognize I do it. And this yeshiva bach is crushed, totally destroyed, totally devastated, and he needs tremendous chizik to come back to himself. Would you like to understand why that is? Because there's another component to the nefesh abahami that also factors in. You see, in the nefesh abahami, in the animal soul of man, there are also different components. There's anger, there's jealousy, there's arrogance, there's hunger, there's laziness, there's desires. And those midos, those different traits, sort of flare up at different times to different extents. And when they flare up, suddenly they also cover my vision. We dealt with, a few weeks ago, anger. So let's assume I have a problem with anger. I get angry, furious, I'm furious. When I'm angry... I'm no longer viewing things the same way that I was before. I now think differently. I have different priorities, different values. I might be a person who never raises my voice, but suddenly I get angry and I say things that I would never say. But why would I do that? Because at this moment, I feel it's appropriate. At this moment, I think the words I'm saying are proper and good. Why? Because I become drunk with that emotion. When I'm angry, I think differently view things differently, feel differently, and at that moment it seems to be intelligent. And the proof in the pudding is, the next day, when I review what I said, what I did, and how I said it, I look at myself and say, what was my problem? What was I thinking? How could I speak that way? How could I talk? To, how could I say those words? And if you don't think I'm right, then you're probably not married. But if you're married, you'll know that uh, it's very, very true. And that simple reality is, at the moment that I'm angry, 
I think differently, feel differently, view things differently, and it's like I'm drunk with that emotion until the next day, until I come down, and suddenly I'm back to normal. I review what I did, what I said with, with utter shock. How could I have done it? And the answer is I was drunk with that emotion. If you like to understand the human, you see those different traits, and it's a full list, the anger, jealousy, arrogance, laziness, desire, all of them flare up at different times, and all of them are like another filter in front of my mind's eye. So let's imagine that anger is red, and jealousy is green, and uh, the, let's say laziness is brown. Now that mida may be stronger or weaker. So let's assume anger. If it's a 50-50, let's have a reasonably good temper. So then it's a 50% red. I mean, it's not quite clear, not quite deep red. It's sort of a pink. And when that filter comes in front of my eyes, suddenly I see the world differently. Now I'm still in my right mind. I'm still cognizant. But I look at the world through the pink eyes of 50-50. And the proof in the pudding is, and watch someone who has a real temper when he confronts something that he realizes is really not in his best interest. I get out of the car, somebody cut me off in traffic, I get out of the car, stand there, and, and suddenly a six foot four hulking guy who looks like a middle linebacker comes out of the car. Uh, so I'm, I apologize. I hope I didn't offend you. In it. How did I suddenly become apologetic? I thought I was looking at things differently. I thought I was viewing the world differently. The answer is I was. I was 50% blocked with that red vision, but I was still there. And I was still aware, and when I see the size of that guy, suddenly I become very meek, very timid, very apologetic, because it's not complete. But the media changes. The more you work on the media, it might go from 50%, it might become 40%, 30%, and if you get really good at it, it becomes 20%. So then when the anger flares up, Instead of 50% coverage, instead of seeing the world in a dark pink, it's a very faint light pink. So yes, I'm angry, but my anger is much less potent, much less powerful, and the more you work on it, the weaker it becomes. The opposite, the more you give into it, the stronger it becomes. It becomes 75%, becomes 80%. So I want you to imagine the following. Imagine we have a great tzaddik, and he's at the level of 80% nefesh asichli, he sees things with total clarity. But he has only 20% Nefesh Bahami, so his normal vision is acute. He sees brilliantly. He understands the consequences. He gets it, but he has a flaw. He has a very fierce temper. And imagine his temper is an 80. And when he gets angry, it's an 80% filter that covers his eyes. So normally his sight is brilliant. And normally he understands that Hashem is present, that he understands the consequences. He understands that every word he'll be held accountable for. But when he gets angry, he's an 80% red filter. At that moment, what he sees is red. And in his mind's eye, what's appropriate, what's proper is to embarrass you, to insult you. And what you're looking at is a person who's becoming drunk with that midah. You see, each of the midos comes in front of the existing two different lenses. You see, I'm nefesh bahami nefesh sikhli, and that's a general balance of where I'm at. Am I 20-20, 50-50, 80-20? There's a general balance. But then each of the individual midos, each of the individual character traits are their own lens, and depending on where that is developed or not, is going to be a lens on top of my lens. So if you had a great tzaddik who was 20% nefesh bahami, he saw very, very clearly but now that red lens is very, very potent, he's blinded, and each of the midos, depending on how much you've worked on it, will determine how strong it is.
If you'd like to understand this yeshiva, Bach, I think it's very clear. He was a person who was steiging, growing, and he probably is at a different level maybe than you and I. He might have been in a level of 40% Nefesh Asikli, only 60% Nefesh Bahami. And therefore, he understood the value of every word of learning, understood the damage of the Nevera. But the only problem is, because he's a young fellow, he has a desire at a very, very high level. And imagine that desire is a powerful, powerful filter, and it covers his mind's eye to an 80%. He's blinded. And at that moment, what he does, he says to himself, this is good, this is right, this is proper, and he does something. But then when that desire passes, it leaves his vision, and he looks back and he says, how could I have done that? What was my problem? What was I thinking? Because he comes back to his normal understanding. And in his normal understanding, it makes no sense. And if you want to understand this conclusively, there's one more step you have to understand. I have a mushal, and I like to talk about, it's Moshi the Yeshiva Bachar, the first year he gets drunk on Purim. Imagine we have a first year based Medrash fellow, he's 19 years old, and he decides to get good and drunk on Purim. And you see him on Purim day, and he's out in the street. Hey, Moshi, what are you doing? I'm playing in traffic. Moshi, you're going to get hit by a car. I know. <laughs> hit by a car, smack, crack my back. <laughs> Moshi, you're going to get hit by a car to send you to the hospital. I know. Smack, crack, hit my back to put pins in my spine. After I go through metal detecting the airport. Ding, ding, ding. No, no, stop. You're having a conversation with a person. He understands the consequences. He says, I get hit by a car, sent to the hospital, put pins in my back. So he's alert. He's, he's functional. Yet he's playing in traffic. What are you dealing with? You're dealing with a fellow who's drunk. There's a mind that's working, but the mind is blocked. The mind is confused. He doesn't. He sees the consequences, but doesn't really feel them. He sees the results, but doesn't perceive the real gravity of it. And the proof in the pudding is the next day, when he awakes from his slumber, and you show him a video of him playing, what's I doing? Is that crazy? What's wrong with me? You're, nothing wrong with you. You were drunk. And that's exactly us as human beings. I see things with absolute clarity of vision when it's you. But when it's about me, suddenly my vision is greatly blocked. Number one, the filters of the Nefesh sickly Nefesh Bahami. How much have I worked on myself? How developed? And let's assume that I'm 80% Nefesh Bahami. I see things through an 80% brown filter and my vision is occluded. But then if anything spikes, whether it be jealousy, whether it be anger, whether it be laziness, whether it be desire, now there's a new filter that suddenly covers my vision, but it's on top of my current filter. So I might normally be able to understand the consequences, but I get angry and suddenly I feel differently. I view the world differently. I look at things differently, and suddenly I am a very different person until the anger passes. But that understanding allows you to understand how it is that we do things that make no sense, that Yeshiva Bachon, he would come back to his senses the next day and would look back on what he did and say in his normal now sober mind, how could I have done this? But much like Moshe the Yeshiva Bachu, the day after he's drunk, is now sober and says, what was I thinking? What was I doing? This Yeshiva Bachar, after he came back out of the being blinded by desire, looked back on what he did and said, how could I confront myself? How could I live with myself? How could I have ever done that? He had a level of understanding that we maybe could benefit from, but I believe that this is the answer to the door of the Miraglim. Would you like to know how they could say that they're more powerful than God? They saw Hashem, but they saw these giants as more powerful than God? The answer is fear was their test. 
they were maybe 90% clear because they stood on Har Sinai and because they heard Hashem say, Anochi Hashem Lekecha, they reached a level of spiritual purity, reached a level of understanding that they saw things with maybe 90% clarity and the Nefesh of Bahami was very, very weak, only 10%. But here was a real test. Here in the movie theater called Life, there were giants, big, powerful giants. And if you'd like to understand it, I'll share with you an interesting observation. When the movie picture industry was start, first starting, no one knew about movie theaters, and no one knew about moving pictures, and they started showing some exhibits, and one of the famous first movies was, they filmed a train, but the way they filmed it was, the train was coming right at the, at the photographer, and it looked like the train was going to hit you. In any case, the people are in the movie theater, and apparently audience after audience when the train was coming at them, they would get up and run out of the theater because they didn't grow up with movies. They didn't know it was just... They knew, but but it's so... Uh, get me out of here! And that was the Dordea. Yes, they saw Hashem. And yes, they lived with the Mon the, every day at the doorstep. And yes, they lived with the rock following through the Midbar. They lived in Anonim. They knew that Hashem was there, but this was the movie theater of life. And fear came in front of their mind's eye, and at that moment, they were blinded, and they said something so foolish, the, the, the giants, they're the, the powerful, more, more, more powerful than God. But they felt it. They understood the folly, they understood the stupidity of it, and but at the same moment, it was real to them, it felt vivid, because they were blinded, and the fear blinded their mind's eye, and fear covered their vision, covered their mental understanding, and therefore they said something that sounds so ridiculous, but again, that's the simple reality of life. When I'm viewing you, it's very clear. The problem is when it's me, I'm in that movie theater, it's real, and it's very, very scary. And I believe that we can see this on a daily basis all the time. And I'll share with you what I mean. A little while back, um, a little while back means before Corona. A little while back, I was driving my wife's car, and I was on the highway, and I was doing whatever the speed was, I guess uh, certainly over 60 miles an hour, and all of a sudden the car just stopped. It comes to a very smooth but quick deceleration. I said, what's going on? And only then did I realize that it had smart brakes. You see, the car is equipped with motion detectors, and it saw what I didn't see, and that was that far down the highway the traffic was stopped, and therefore it braked automatically and brought me to a nice quick deceleration. And I said to myself, wow, that is smart. That is a smart car. And I realized that we've come a long way. It wasn't that long ago that the horse and buggy was the mode of transportation. As a matter of fact, um, if you look back in 1901, in the United States of America, there were 21 million horses and 4,000 automobiles. Times Square in those days, was the center place of buying horse carriages. The blacksmiths were there. That was Times Square, the center of New York City. And in the early 1901, 1905, that that time period, horses were still the method of transportation. And in a very short time, we've come an awfully long way. We've gone into such luxuries, such conveniences, such progression from streaming internet on our phones, satellite communications across globes, a technological revolution. But I'd like to share with you that it was actually a very, very long and slow progression 
over hundreds of years. And this entire driving force had three separate entities to it. Number one, the science. For thousands of years, mankind did not understand the basic mechanics of the world. But it wasn't just a revolution in science. That science then had to be applied. Technology is the application of scientific principles. But there was another feature that was needed, the industry, to drive it forth. And if you study from, let's say, the 1500s, let's say that was the beginning of the scientific revolution. Until then, man was living in the Dark Ages. And the scientific revolution began, let's say, in, they say 1543, somewhere in that range, when Nicholas Copernicus asserted the theory that the sun is the center of the cosmos, the center of the, our, our planetary system. From that point on, there were a slow, slow, gradual progression of understanding, and it took literally thousands, if not millions, of individuals in each generation to uncover small parts and to advance things. In 1664, Newton discovered the laws of gravity. He codified it. In 1821, Michael Faraday discovered electricity and really codified it. He didn't discover it. It was discovered long before but he was the one who actually put it into a terminology that could be measured. In 1860, Louis Pasteur discovered the germ theory. X-rays came, then penicillin in 1928, DNA in 1953, and it was a long, slow progression. But you see, each area of study required the other one. You see, mathematics depends on chemistry, and understanding of chemistry requires understanding of physics. You can't understand physics without a great understanding of math. Math is the language of physics. And every single advancement required many other fields of study to have advanced. And it took millions of individuals advancing in very many different fields of study, each one adding a new step, each one adding a new understanding, this built on that, this built on that, this built on that, and hence the science over a period of 500 years advanced from the most simple to the most complex until we understand quantum theory, until we can split atoms, until we have tremendous, tremendous understanding at our fingertips. But science alone is irrelevant. Science will not benefit you whatsoever unless it's applied. So technology, which again is the application of science, had to also evolve very, very slowly, beginning with the printing press of Gutenberg in the 1420s, and scientific method, then astronomy, and finally the telescope, Without the telescope, there's no astronomy. But without the telescope, there's no astronomy, which means there's no understanding of the size of the universe. Without Each step was needed to advance not just itself, but the scientific understanding, as well as the next levels. Where on a microscope, you don't understand biology. But each new understanding in science was accompanied, was escorted by a technological advance. It was then applied in some manner. That technological advance then helped science, science helped the technology. And again, after hundreds of years, with an army of people, mankind came to a vastly different understanding. But again, science is not enough, technology isn't enough, and you need a driving force. You need something pushing it all, and you need something really being the engine of it. And the engine of it all was the industry, the Industrial Revolution, let's say we'll call it somewhere in the 1760s began, but the Industrial Revolution means that individuals, whether they be business owners, homeowners who are going to buy things, 
were driving this force because there was tremendous amount of advantage in applying that technology in ways that could be useful. So we began with the spinning jenny, the, the steam engine, locomotive, telegraphs, dynamite, photograph, and each one was led by multitudes of people. When George Eastman came up with the, a way of developing film so that it could be easily, instead of dry plates, could be actually film, and he began spreading it, it required millions and millions of dollars, teams of people working in his factory, and you could still go in Rochester, New York, and you could see the huge Eastman Kodak, call it a city, because it took a tremendous amount of energy and effort to produce one little element, and the industry is the driving force behind it. But here's the point. We're talking about 500 years. An army of people advances in science, in technology, with entire world kind pushing behind it in industry, and finally we have arrived. We went from the horse and the buggy to sending a man to the moon to splitting an atom to the final greatest accomplishment, microwave popcorn. Mankind has arrived. But here's the observation. If you find me a very, very sophisticated machine and find me an animal in the wild kingdom, I'll ask you which is more sophisticated. So let's go back to a horse and buggy and my smart car. If I were to ask you which is more advanced and which is more complex, the smart car or the horse and buggy? You say, what's the question? Horse and buggy is primitive. I mean, there's nothing to it. <clears throat> the smart car, oh my goodness, look how complex it is. I'd like to share with you, any living creature is infinitely more complex than the greatest machine man has ever invented, discovered, or put together. And I'll explain to you exactly what I mean. And let's begin with the following. All of nature, all of nature is self-energizing. Every plant, every insect, every reptile, Every animal in nature finds its own food source, <clears throat> creates its own energy, and is self-sufficient. It's self-energizing. Could you imagine if you had a car that was self-energizing? Can you imagine if you had a watch or an iPhone that didn't need recharging? Can you imagine the wealth you'd have if you could develop a machine that was self-energizing? Any machine that man has requires fossil fuel, it could be solar energy, it could be nuclear energy, but it requires an energy source. There has to be some input put in there that's expensive, that's difficult, that's cumbersome, and to keep it going. Yet every single part of nature is self-energizing. But that's not enough. If I haven't convinced you, here's another little step. There are 1.5 million species of animals, at least known animals, in the wild kingdom. Every one of them, every one of them is self-locomotive. Self-locomotive means they go on their own. Now, I know the Google car, and I know that we're now coming to the age, we're right on the cusp of self-driving cars. I'd like to share with you, self-driving cars are so primitive, number one, even if they do work, and even if they don't run the old lady over and wasn't supposed to be where she's not supposed to be, someone took a tremendous amount of energy and effort. Millions and millions of man years were spent in the coding that goes into writing that computer coding to tell the Google car to go left, to go right, to brake, to go fast, to go slow. But as it moves, it is so primitive. Compare it to a bat. Compare it to a fly. 
Try catching a fly with your bare hand. It moves this way. That and yet, no matter how fast it is, the bat, without eyesight, with echolocation, catches the fly in mid-flight with its two outer teeth, pierces it, and consumes it. Find me a self-driving car that has that level of navigation. But it's every single one of the living creatures, and from the dolphin to the giraffe to the ant to the spider, they each are self-locomotive, but with the greatest of instincts, and the most uncanny ability to move, to go, here, left. And somehow it is, without anybody programming them, without somebody writing the code, somehow they know exactly what to do, when to do, how to go. Find me the most sophisticated self-driving car. It doesn't begin to compare in any shape, form, or fashion to the self-locomotion of anything in the wild kingdom. So number one, all of nature is self-energizing. Nothing of man's creation is self-energizing. Number two, all of the wild kingdom is self-locomotive. Nothing that man ever could create could be self-locomotive. The best of it has to be programmed and trained. And even that is so cumbersome and so clunky that it pales in comparison to anything in the wild kingdom. But let's look at the third distinction. My son decided he wanted a pet. What was the pet? He wanted mice. Okay, so we go to the pet store, and we're looking at this mouse, that mouse, that mouse, and suddenly we saw in one of the cages were three baby, baby mice, little tiny, mother had just given birth. That was a little unusual because this pet store only carried male mice. Normally, the pet store will either carry only female or only male because mice are, tend to reproduce. But in any case, somehow a female had gotten in and gave birth, and it was a tiny little, little, little babies, and my kids were there, and my son said, I want it. So we asked the pet store owner, he said, fine, and he gave us these uh, mice. Turned out there weren't two, there were actually three. So we took them, these little babies, and we had a cage, and we put them up, and we gave them the water and the food, and we watched them grow. And it was a pleasure to watch. They started growing, they started growing. We had three little mice growing, and then I noticed that one of the three mice was growing, but not just growing in size, was growing wider, wider and wider and wider, and then she gave birth. And suddenly, we had grown mice, and many more baby mice. Well, the gestation period of the mouse is 21 days. So it didn't take very long until these little baby mice grew up, became pregnant, and then suddenly we had a new brood, a new brood and a new brood, and within a very short time we had 100 mice in a small little cage, and I recognized we had a problem. Here's the observation. All of the wild kingdom are self-reproducing. The giraffe has a baby giraffe. The baboon has a baby baboon. The cougar has a baby cougar. Find me a self-replicating machine that man ever made. Imagine you buy a Tesla, and you park it in your driveway. The next day, two Teslas. Ah, Mazel Tov, it gave birth. How about an iPhone? Have you ever had an iPhone give birth? It gave birth to an Android. A DNA mistake. It doesn't happen. There's nothing that man ever made that's anywhere near self-replicating. But do you understand the wonder of it? For the animal itself to give birth to an animal like it, its plants, its animals, its insects, its aphids, the entire wild kingdom, everything that is alive is, number one, self-energizing, finds its own food source, takes care of itself, is self-sufficient. Number two, all of the wild kingdom are self-locomotive. They move on their own. And number three, they're self-energizing replicating. 
they bring up the next generation and find me the most sophisticated machine that man ever made, and it pales in comparison. As a matter of fact, if you ask a biologist, compare the most complex city, the most complex city in mankind's existence to a human body, and he would tell you there's no comparison. Because he would tell you there's no comparison between New York City and one cell in the human body. And what we call nature is so sophisticated, so incredibly complex, and all you have to do is open a biology textbook and see page after page describing the systems and the, the pulleys and wheels, the various chemical cascades, the incredible complexities beyond description. Okay, here's the question. Where did it all come from? So we all know any self-respecting uh, science uh, major will tell you it all came from a Big Bang. You see, there was nothing, absolute absence of anything, and then there was a Big Bang, and a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars, came into existence. Okay, I got that, and I'm going to grant you that. I'm going to grant you no creator, no intelligent design, it just happened on its own. Gravity, electricity, magnetism, uh, you know, these things, it all just, okay, I got it, I got it. Even though the laws are so complex, even though the laws are so sophisticated, that man is just beginning to get a tip of the iceberg of the complexity of the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, the laws, okay, but I'll grant you, it all just happened. Here's the next question. Life. Where did life come from? Life is living, right? I mean, a rock is a rock. I get it, there's a big bang and rocks came out of planets and, and lava and, and, and geothermetric forces. I got all good. I got that. But a, ge- a giraffe is alive. A zebra is living. There's, there's life. Even a plant is life. It's, again, self-energizing, self-replicating. What that li- Where does life begin? Where does life come from? Where? So here's what happened. There was a pre-mortal soup. And from this pre-mortal soup, something occurred. And suddenly, basic proteins began forming. And suddenly, from those basic proteins, some basic life forms started starting. They became more sophisticated, more sophisticated, survival of the fittest, and before you know it, we have man. Okay. Okay. Let's think about that for a moment. Um, all biochemists <coughs> agree that life on Earth arose spontaneously from non-living matter, right? Non-living matter. Here's a little problem. Take the most simple protein, the basic, basic building compound of all of that's alive, it's so complex, consisting of thousands of atoms of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and arranged in absolute definitive patterns. It has to be in an exact manner or it won't happen. So here's a little quote from a professor, Professor Edwin Conklin, who studied this and said, the probability of life arranging from accident is comparable to the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in the printing shop. But that's one protein. A single protein is so complex that the odds of it coming into existence on its own are the odds of an entire dictionary, an entire encyclopedia, coming about from an explosion in a printing shop, and suddenly we have page number one, two, three, four, five, in alphabetical order, and all the definitions right next to it, and the commas, and the period. Okay, good. Not very likely. But here's the problem. Let's even say somehow we got lucky. The printing shop blew up. And in that major explosion, somehow the ink got spilled, and, 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 and we got the entire dictionary right there, in alphabetical order, in numeric. I got it. It's amazing. It's great. All we've done there is gotten to the protein. 
the protein is one of the most basic building blocks of living matter, but that's so simple. Proteins don't talk, proteins don't walk, they're not self-replicating, they don't have much to do other than just be proteins. How do you get from protein to the cat, from protein to the dog, to the giraffe? So here's another little quote from Sir Frederick Hoyle, an eminent astrophysicist from Great Britain. The chance of higher life forms having emerged in this way is comparable to the chance of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard assembling a Boeing 747. Meaning you have a junkyard, a junkyard with broken refrigerators, broken cars, and suddenly what happened? A major typhoon, a major hurricane came by and whoosh! There I have it, a Boeing 747 with the seats, with the lights, and with the perfect radar, with everything arranged. And right there on it, it's got jet blue right there on the... You know what happened? It was a major typhoon. A ma- what are you, kidding? Are you, are you sober? Are you real? The preposterousness of it, the absolute ridiculousness of it, is so beyond description that how can intelligent people actually say this? And the answer is because they are drunk. You see, when I'm in this state called being a human being, there's part of me that's brilliant. Every single human being has an ashama, but every human being also has an Efesha Bahami. And if you're seeing through a lens that's occluded, and that lens might be occluded by a desire for freedom, I don't want God, I don't want whatever it may be, but my lens is blocked 80%, 90%, I could say the most ridiculous things, say the most preposterous things, and believe it, because my mind is shut. My vision is blocked. I don't understand it. And much like that filter that blocks the vision and you can't see because it's muddy, the filter of looking through life, looking through a nefesh Bahami, looking through an animal soul, and blocks the understanding and lets me say the most ridiculous things that a human being could ever say and actually think them, believe them, feel them to be real. And I think this Rashi shares with us a profound concept. And that is the Dor Hadea had great clarity of understanding. They had seen our Sinai. They lived through Kriya Shamsuf. And they experienced Hashem saying, Anochi Hashem Lekecha. And they were at a level of 90% clarity. The Nefesh Bahami barely, barely blocked them. We're occluded. I see through 80% mud. It's hard for me to see Hashem. And it's hard for me to appreciate the value of a mitzvah. But they lived through an experience that was supernatural. And they lived through a moment of utter Kedusha. And they were transformed by that. And they were at a level of seeing things the opposite, 90% clarity and only 10% mud. But on top of the regular filter of the Seichel and the Nefesh Bahami, there are traits, there are challenges. And much like in that movie theater, when the realness sign of life happens, it looks so real. They were faced with a very, very frightening perspective. Giants, and giants who looked down and said, look, they're the ants, look at those little ants. They saw powerful people. Be- I know Hashem's strong, but, but, but not, not, not this. Chazak Mimeno, they're stronger than Hashem. How could they say that? And because suddenly fear came in front of their lens, and suddenly their vision was blocked, and they might have normally had only 10% blockage, but suddenly fear came in front of them, and like that child in the movie theater. And when that movie comes on, it looks so real, it's so vivid, it's so scary. And the child may know that it's not real. The child may know black beauty is not really burning, but it's so vivid. It seems, I'm scared. Abba, take me out, please. A tzaddik who reaches a great level, he'll be at a different point, 
as you grow, as you become more and more holy, you see things more clearly, you appreciate things more. Ultimately, our growth is in that area, but you also have to work on each of the individual traits. You have to work on anger, you have to work on jealousy, you have to work on laziness. Why? Because in addition to the regular balance of I, of the 80-20-30-70, in addition to which each of the traits flares up. And if I reach the great Madriga, let's even say I reached 50-50, maybe the opposite, I became a great Sadiq, I became 80% acuity, but I didn't work on anger, and when that anger comes in front of me, that filter might be 70% anger. And I might see through 70% red, and at that moment I become drunk. I become drunk with anger, and the same I who would never say something, suddenly I look at things differently, feel differently, and I say things I never would say because I'm drunk in that moment. And like that yeshiva bacher, that is life. Like the yeshiva bacher gets drunk on the first Purim, the car is going to hit me, smack, crack my back, going to put pins. He understands the consequences, but he doesn't. That's us. And we're in this state of semi-consciousness, semi-alertness. Our general madrega is based on the Nefesh Sikhli versus Nefesh Bahami. But then when each individual trait comes in front of me, depending on the strength of that filter, it's going to block my vision further. I have to work both on the general balance as well as each midah. And you grow, you accomplish. But it, throughout our life, we'll ever be in that theater. And every challenge, it's an issue of understanding. And intellectually, I know things. I have to work on feeling them, being marked them, so I actually live that which I understand. Okay, with that being said, I went much longer than I intended to. I apologize. I don't know what happened. I just looked at the clock and realized that I overshot my time. I'm supposed to speak for a short time and take lots of questions. But okay, but I'll take questions now. I'll gladly take questions. Please feel free to raise your hand if you like, or I'll take type questions if uh, people aren't brave enough, but I will take the uh, raised hands first. Avram, we haven't heard from you for a good while, so Avram, you got the floor. Hi. Good evening, Rabbi. Good evening. Hi. Um, interesting question is, um, even if you understand that Hashem is there, and Hashem is controlling it, I don't know what Hashem's decision is. So meaning, if Hashem's decision is that a guy should, let's say, pull the trigger and shoot me, right. I'm still in pain, I'm still, let's say, fear of death or whatever, and I'm scared to know what Hashem's decision is. Right. So how that sort of not... Okay. With the high level, I'm going to be talking about understanding Hashem, how do I understand... Okay, that's a fair. It's a fair question, but let's understand the following. Imagine I'm walking down a street, and three guys jump out and hold a gun to my head. Naturally, I'm afraid of them. I'm gonna get three guys a gun. Oh, I'm scared. Except one little point. I happen to be accompanied by the entire U.S. Marine Corps. Now, at that moment, I'm not afraid of those three guys. I know that the U.S. Marine Corps is right there, protecting me, guiding me, and there's no difference between. They're being there and they're not being there. At any time, Hashem may be angry at me, Hashem may punish me, I get that, but I know Hashem loves me, Hashem takes care of me, Hashem has a guy, has a plan for me. So these guys are irrelevant. You're right, they're holding a gun, big deal. Hashem is right here. I mean, if I really got it, I recognize a gun is irrelevant. You're right, Hashem might be angry. You're right, any time Hashem could be angry, but I know Hashem loves me, Hashem wants my best, Hashem decreed a certain amount of years, and provided I'm doing what I'm supposed to, Hashem will guide me, protect me. So... These guys are irrelevant. The fact that I'm afraid now is because they're real. Oh my God, I'm in trouble. I, I, I'm in trouble. Hashem, help me. I'm in trouble because they're powerful and Hashem isn't here. They're powerful and Hashem may or may not, I don't know if Hashem is it, but <coughs> I'm in trouble because I'm alone. Do you understand what I'm saying? Meaning, <coughs> when I take them seriously, that means that I understand that they run the world. 
I assume they control my destiny, and they can determine my outcome. That is, now it's, it's normal, it's natural, but that's called kfira. Meaning intellectually I understand it as heresy. Because the basics of our Muna system is knowing that no human being can help me, no human being can harm me. Hashem is there, guiding me, protecting me, all day, every day. You, with your big gun, you're irrelevant. There's only one thing that's relevant, and that is, is Hashem pleased with me, Hashem upset That's That's a good question, but you didn't bring anything to the table, you changed nothing, you are not relevant. So, again, if I had total acuity, if I were Moshe Rabbeinu, and I saw with 100% clarity, I recognize this guy is irrelevant. Now, you're right, we'll never be there, even a great tzaddik is still somewhat afraid because you know it's, it's a, you know it's it's, it's a, a t- tough situation, rough situation. But nevertheless, the more clearly you see Hashem, the more clearly you know Hashem's there. The less you see the danger of man, and the more you understand you, no human being can help me, no human being can harm me. Hashem is right here, and the less you fear. Thank you. Okay. Um, one actually, no, one follow. Yeah. Um, is that um, how how realistic does the uh, lens have to be um, in order for it to be already considered blocking that vision. How realistic does a lens have to be? I'm not following exactly. Help me understand meaning, a little. Meaning, um, the, meaning for instance, the case of Moses and Ragnar, were they were they were they really extremely tall and they were very short? And it was more realistic. No, the the, the, the Ragnar uh, were very tall, but these were giants, physical giants. Goliad. It was six amas, like twelve feet, whatever. They were bigger than that. They were they were huge. They looked at the at the maraglim, who were all full grown people of, of you know regular normal height, maybe more. And they looked at them and said, "Look at the little ants." Look at little, meaning these were physical giants. B'nei, they were bnei alokim who came in the door of uh, the door of flood. They came down, whatever. Exactly. The point is, it was very very frightening. So, so, so I mean, realistically, they could have been twenty feet higher or something. Yeah, or, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Realistically, they could have at least dropped something with a lens and then. Yeah. Right. Right. Thank you. Okay. Good. Okay. Please. Okay. Please feel free to raise your hand or type in a question if you like. Um, but I sure prefer raising hands because it saves my voice for a minute. Um, okay. Someone says anonymous. Not even brave enough to use your name. Hmm. Okay. Yes, I agree with everything you said, but don't you have to do your shtadlis? <clears throat> no, to leave everything to Hashem and not to expect open miracles. Um, okay, so I hope I didn't uh, misguide anyone here. Um, absolutely, you have to do your shtadlis. Please don't, this is not a full spectrum on Emun and Bitochen. If you'd like a full spectrum, you go to the shmuz.com, and there are two series, the Bitochen Workshop, which is 24 shmuzim on uh, Bitochen, the Emunah in the Workplace, which is 12 shurim on Emunah actually applied. If you want to know the system, what's my part, what's Hashem's part, how much shtadlis I have to put in, how much bitachon, where do you find the balance? That is, again, it's detailed, it's very clear. You can go to the, either number, on the shmuz.com, there are a number of shmuzim, but specifically the bitachon workshop, you look on the major series, bitachon workshop, and the workplace, and I go through very clearly laying out the, you know, again, Hashem's role, my role, what's my shtadlis, and I hope I didn't, um, if you're coming in, if you're new to the shmuz, you may think that this is just encapsulating all color Torah in one little shear, it, um, it's not. And I hope I didn't uh, mis, uh, lead, mislead anybody. This is just one element of understanding the Nisayan of life and understanding why the Nisayanists are so real. Why is it that even though I intellectually know something, I'm afraid? Granted, I have to do my shtadlis. Let's say my shtadlis is to fight or to work or whatever it may be, to 
eat right and exercise, whatever it may be. But why do I feel such fear? If I know that Hashem determines the outcome, and I know I'm just going through the motions, my ishtadlis is to use the world in the ways of the world, and then I know I don't control the outcome. What I do is what I have to do because Hashem wants me to do it, but Hashem determines exactly what's going to be. If so, why am I so scared? Why am I so afraid? Why do I have that sense of dread and trepidation? The answer is because I'm only seeing things with 20% clarity and mostly blocked, so I'm in that movie theater like the child, and it's so scary, it's so real, I'm afraid. And understanding that allows us to understand how intellectually we can understand things, yet emotionally feel very differently. Okay, um, okay, you're rocking it tonight. Okay, good, thank you. Rabbi, how about s- cell differentiation? How does a fertilized egg divide into equal cells, uh, some of which make eyes, some bones, liver, skin, nerves? Uh, yep, I agree, I agree. Not a question, right, but okay. Um, okay. Um, okay, please feel free. If you have questions, raise your hands. Benyamin Pesach, I haven't heard from you for a while, so let's give you the floor, please. Shalom Aleichem, hi. I think you could talk, no? Yes. Hey, first of all, very good shows as usual. And not to take away from the shows, but obviously even uh, anything that's alive has quote-unquote self-locomotion. It does does require fuel in the sense of breathing oxygen and ingesting food and all that. Buy your Tesla. Buy your Tesla and tell me if you don't plug it in how long it's going to run. And by the way, when you're over 250 miles, you better find a place to plug it in quick or you're going to f- stop. So a human being can't manage, manage more than a few minutes without oxygen uh, oh. and more than a few days without, without food and water also. But, it's some, but nobody's putting the water into him. Right. He's itself... The difference is, is there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a brain and a thought process. Oh, a brain. A brain? A, what is a brain? It's just a hundred billion molecules, uh, atoms. I mean, uh, uh, it's not. It's not lines of code. Not, not lines of code or something like that. Like in a computer program that basically cover every scenario. And working computers can say if you if there's a scenario that this programmer with a self-driving car forgot to take in consideration, then the car is going to crash because the person forgot about that situation. They said, "Oh, we didn't take in consideration. Something like that might happen." And therefore, it wasn't able to handle okay. it. So, let me, 100%. Can, can, I, can I stop for one second? Let, let me make the point. If Let's assume I said to you the following. You see that iPhone that you have, that Tesla, the satellite. You know what happened? It evolved. I deny scientific revolution. I deny the industrial revolution. I deny that man spent decades and decades and, and million armies. I deny it. it just happened on its own. What would you say to me? Obviously, it's nonsense. You're I mean, out of your cotton picking mind. Old, Why? Old, because old, the sophistication. Look at the king, the guy that told the rabbi to prove God, and he made this beautiful painting, and he said it happened on its own, and all the different mices like that. But wait, so, stop one second, stop one second. So, here's the point. The point is, you'd say it's absurd, because with my own eyes, my own understanding, I recognize the sophistication of any machine that man makes, and I recognize that it took 500 years. And an army of people, of course, in countless industries, step by step to develop it. And yet, if I find one thing in the animal kingdom that's so more sophisticated, so more complex, and I tell you, it evolved. All right, fine. If you don't hear, no, 100%, okay, hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm not, I'm not disputing that at all. I'm just saying that the, that the way Hashem created the world was that anything physical does need to ingest food or oxygen or photosynthesis or some method of converting uh, matter into energy, etc. As opposed to a Malach, who let's say he doesn't need that. Okay, good. 
What's today's question? What? Oh, you have a question? Uh, I'm just saying. So that if oh. I'm just I'm just pointing that it's the self that even the self. It's not. It, we do we do require fuel. It's not like we could uh-huh. horse could just keep on going if you didn't eat the hay. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Created it needed. That's all. That's the uh-huh. point. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. And the point we hear though, right? The same absurd. Right. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. It's right. foolish to say the iPhone created itself. It's uh-huh. even more foolish to say that the horse created itself. Okay. Good. Okay, Ishkaya. Okay, good, good. Thanks. Okay, please feel free to raise your hand if you like. Let me see if we have other questions. Uh, you don't have questions? Fine. Okay. Uh, one more time, I just want to mention if you haven't yet gotten a chance to see the pre publication copy of The 10 Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Small Couples Make, again, it's not in the stores. It won't be in the stores until uh, probably Rosh Hashanah, but this is the pre publication copy. It means it has, it's the basic, it's the book. But just some minor typos, etc., have need to be cleaned up. If you'd like a copy, go to the schmooze.com, T H E S H M U Z.com, and you'll see on the banner on top you could get a copy. And it ships all over the world. If for some reason you're not able to get shipping, if you're watching this and you're in some place and that you can't get shipping through that click, then send me an email, Rebbe at the schmooze.com, R E B B E at the schmooze.com, and Amazon ships all over the world Argentina to Alaska to even to New York City, even to Brooklyn, even to Flatbush. So, right, so please feel free to um, to take advantage. Also, if you're not receiving the Schmooze, uh, if you're not part of the Schmooze WhatsApp Chizuk group, three, four times a week we send these short, very meaningful videos. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe, send a please subscribe to 845-216-9330. Again, it's 845-216-9330. I thank you very much for joining. Hope to see you next week. Have a good Shabbos. Thank you.